sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's it's Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. You can always get involved with the show uh, if you want to get in touch via the email inbox. That's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Send us letters. Send us letters. Yeah. Thanks. And by the way, you guys are creating the show. You might not be as excited about all that once I tell you what we got in the mail. Uh, so today you're terrible. No, 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 no. This is awesome. But this is, I feel like a lot of the letters we get are like, Murdoch, I love you and the 80s and hair metal. Let's blah, 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 blah. And today we get a letter. It's from me. It's from me and it's from my people. It's from Brandon. And Brandon says this. Greeting story, guys. First off, love the podcast. Reminds me so much of sitting and talking rock and roll trivia with my dad as a kid. Thanks for the hard work in making such a fun and informative show. Wow, what a far out cool thing that I never would imagine this being for someone. I'm glad that worked out for you because that's kind of cool. Me too. Now, for the part that I'm excited about. One of the things that immediately drew me to the podcast was Brian saying he was a 90s kid and that his two favorite <laughs> bands were Counting Crows and Third Eye Blind. Third Eye Blind. I, I love I love you needed this so much. Mm, I did. I, too, am a 90s kid and a huge Counting Crows fan. That being said, during the 90s, my favorite, favorite band was Dave Matthews' band. Oh, it's his favorite band was Dave Matthews' band. Yeah. In, in 2000, DMB fans were made aware of a leaked record known widely as the Lily White Sessions. It just seems like there's always been a bit of a question as to whether or not this album was intentionally leaked as a publicity stunt or if there was a mix-up that led to the songs being released on the internet accidentally. Do you remember yeah. this? Oh, sure. So oh, yeah. I had somehow forgotten about this, and the first image that popped into my mind when I read that note the first time was the image of my giant CD wallet storage container trapper keeper looking thing. Remember those? Shouts to those, man. Sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. To circa 2001, I definitely used to display inside it a CDR with the words Lily White Sessions plastered across it in my unmistakable Sharpie scroll. Yeah. I had a copy of the Lily White uh, Sessions for sure. And I know people can throw shade at Dave Matthews all they want to, and people can like whatever kind of music they want to, but... He wasn't necessarily my thing, but it was unavoidable where I was at. So because oh of how because he he did he did ten thousand seats, dude. I know with no record deal at RCA yet. He went from playing like fraternity parties to like killing it. I thought because of our age gap, it wasn't going to resonate with you. But man, you just described it for me. Okay, so Brandon could not have more squarely nailed a common experience than this one because I graduated high school in 2001 and this leak happens in march of 2001 one month after the replacement album every day which of course we got to talk about after that was released and i pulled out every day when i started research for this episode it seems to be the only dmb output that i still have a physical copy of i definitely used to own a lot of them but do you ever have a, do you have those records where especially the ones that maybe you grew up on or listened to in high school specifically where you put them on and you may not have heard them in a couple of decades, but you have like a physical reaction to it. Like this record is like a time machine for me. I probably haven't listened to this much since 2001. Yeah, but me neither. Th me neither. Th there are pathways in my brain that were forged by Boyd Tinsley, Carter, Beaufort, Leroy Moore. It wasn't even that as a high school senior in a rich enclave of a small tourist town in Arkansas that I was choosing to listen to every day. It's that everyone 
else was choosing to listen to every day. I think every keg party, my my second semester, my senior year, every graduation get together, every third car ride I went on. I and I mentioned this because as we get into the minutia of this story, because of the lore and the historical distance, there becomes this tendency to cast every day as unsuccessful. And that is not what happened. Every it's a number one record. Every day was a huge record. It debuted at number one. Remember back in the day when you could sell seven hundred and thirty-two thousand copies of something in the first week? Yeah, and you you got a number one record. You haven't sold a million, but yeah, it, um, it stayed yeah. for uh, two weeks at number one. After twenty-five weeks of sales, it sold over two point five million copies. Uh, to date, it sold three million. No, of course, Dave Matthews Band has. Uh, incredible success before this and, and you know they sell yeah. the the number of albums they sell in those first three official releases dwarf this but every right. day was not a failure but and, and here's where you and i look we're gonna get somewhere with dave matthews and have something in common but for me after that third record came out i was i kind of unplugged from i wasn't listening to music as much then either and i didn't hear his records as much like there weren't they weren't interjected into what I was doing at all until I, I guess I was playing them on the radio again, like after you and I met. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, I, I really had, because those, you know, those for, for me, those first two records, I think are really, I think they're masterful. They're really, I think they're really great. The songs are really good. Well, I think they're terrific. What, what we'll get into those albums. Cause clearly they're very important to what becomes the, you know, Dave Matthews band comes to signify, but in the twilight of my high school experience, this record every day was the soundtrack to everything culminating with me seeing the band perform for the first and only time so far that may. Uh, wow. And, and this was a show at which a random guy tapped me on the shoulder and showed me a very large Ziploc bag full of joints that he was willing to share. And that confirmed a lot of stereotypes for me about Dave Matthews band. A Ziploc bag of joints. I've never seen anything wow. like it. Like, I've known a lot of people who love pot, but I've never seen a bag that big. And I had totally forgotten it until I turned this stupid record on while getting ready for this episode. And I was like, oh my God, I'm back at the music festival with that dude tapping me on the shoulder. So Brandon's question is about the leak of these sessions, specifically. Yeah. And, and the origin, right, uh, of the leak. And he asks basically... A, a, an either or question was it an accident or was it a publicity stunt but he leaves out a third option and and this is a theory that's a lot more prevalent when you start to research this situation the third option is not accident or publicity stunt it's it's heist it's thievery yeah did someone it's, steal and release this music yeah and so it was recorded what like the late 90s 2000 and then when did it come out officially Every day comes out in February of 2001, and a month later, after those are on the market, and the fan base revolts. See, that's the important distinction here. The average person who is not a super big DMB fan loves every day. Um, I actually will get into this, but I got really into the DMB message boards. They're all still intact. You can go way back into the 90s and read postings. And I read somebody writing a post about some of this stuff, and they said, they, they described, they said, let me tell you what a person who likes every day is like. <laughs> just, they, they really get into it. And, and they said, I saw a friend of mine's wife who always said she didn't like DMB and I, I saw her in 2003 and this was like written like around that time I think like probably within five years of that time it wasn't like written yesterday said I saw her in 2003 after the record came out and she was listening to Space Between and I said I thought you didn't like Dave Matthews Band and she said but I like this song and then in 2006 like this is how much of a grudge this person holds in 2006 I saw that woman again and she got in my car and I was playing Crush which is an excellent DMB song I was playing Crush, and she said, turn this shit off. And that's the sort of person that likes every day. <laughs> so, really I, yeah, it is funny. And I bring it up only to illustrate that DMB fan base, we'll get into this, revolts about every day for a lot of reasons, which we're going to get into. That's why a month later, the Lily White Sessions leak, and that is March of 2001. Roger, I got it. And do you know who are you? We're going to talk about Steve Lillywhite. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Great. So, okay, all right, uh, okay, keep going. 
I think if you're listening to this right now without having lived through this time period or having just like no understanding of DMB and the music in 2001, the begged question is actually, why would someone steal sessions from this band? And even if they did, why was this a big deal? And to answer that, there's a whole lot we have to unpack. We have to understand the fan base that defined and continues to this day to define the band. We have to understand the history and the relationships that define this band at the time. And we have to understand the world of 2001 from the standpoint of technology and culture and how they were careening into each other at full speed at this point. So to do all of this, we have to start by saying a phrase that I'm pretty sure has never been uttered on this show before in more than 100 episodes. And, and a phrase I know you don't like very much. Uh, the phrase... <laughs> Jam band. Satellite in my <laughs> can we can we are we are we just gonna look from a non-fan? Some of these songs are just um immaculately gorgeous. I think they're they're perfect, beautiful songs that are unique from his voice and and well the way he creates it. And then the the band itself is it, it is a, I think it's terrific. But well, I mean, we'll talk not, about I it. I mean, there's there's a lot of ingredients here, right? Like, and when we start yeah. to talk about the formation of this band, we'll get to why they're so unique and why it's so impressive um, from a musicality standpoint. But you know that that the phrase I said was jam band. We we have to understand what a jam band is. That phrase can spark pretty intense reactions from folks, but we'll boil it down to the fundamentals to which we are referring for the purposes of this conversation, and that is a musical group whose concerts and live albums are characterized by lengthy improvisational jams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is this the part of the show where you tell the story about getting punched in the face at a widespread panic concert? No. I mean, if you want me to, <laughs> I don't know if I've told that. If I haven't told it, I'll tell it. But, uh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, this means essentially when you were talking about a jam band that every time the group plays one of their songs, it might be a little different and it might be really long and it might include other song snippets and alternate structures. And it might cover a lot of genres like jazz and funk and R and B and rock and roll. And this all emerges in the sixties. When you think of the ultimate jam bands, who do you think of? Uh, the grateful dead Jefferson airplane. Um, for sure. Yeah, I don't hear Airplane in that conversation a lot, but I definitely hear Allman Brothers. And, of course, Grateful Dead is like the ultimate, ultimate founders of this whole thing, right? Um, yeah, and I never, you know what? I never think about the, that this is really, it's a thing in my head. I never think about the Almonds as being a jam band. Like, well, I kind of, I kind of just still put them together with, with Skinner and Marshall Tucker yeah. Band as being, yeah. as being a, a, like a, a, a Southern rock band. That's and fair, like, but they're, they're, they bring the ethos, right? Yeah, and and the history and the other things that have come before them and the other music that they were that they've made is is remarkable. And I, I bet, and I don't have documentation on this, but I would bet that you can probably trace a lot of jam bands currently to a source of influence from the Almond Brothers and to an amount of covering the Almond Brothers. Like I'm sure there is a chart somewhere that shows like the acts from the '60s and '70s who are most covered by current jam bands. I would say Almond Brothers are probably there somewhere. Yeah, I like mean, Melissa alone. Yeah, our whipping post. <laughs> it's like I, you and I both went to like different spaces where we would go with the Almond Brothers. I was like whipping post. Melissa's so good. Melissa's a fan, fantastic song. Okay, yeah, right? so uh, it, it's important to put them in this category, right? Because it helps understand the fan base and their understanding of the musical relationship they have with this band, right? And and just to trace the lineage a little longer, so we've got the Allman Brothers, we've got the Grateful Dead. In the late 80s, there starts to emerge this new class that's following that classic template and creating these organic fan bases throughout pockets of the country. And it really sort of takes off when Jerry Garcia dies in 95, because now there's this like throne to inherit. Yeah. And that's when you get this new set of acts. Uh, Fish is probably the most notable, but on the list, you would put Dave Matthews' band. This is interesting because, and we'll get to this, but Dave Matthews' band has a ma a mainstream level of success that no jam band has ever really had, right? Um, right. The, the Grateful Dead didn't have radio hits. Commercial radio didn't really want to play those acts. Now, one of the key things to know about jam bands is they often allow and encourage their fans to tape their shows. 
And the reason you would do this is back to that definition of jam band. Every show has differences, so rabid fans want to hear everything. If you go see a traditional touring act, if you and I go see Imagine Dragons tomorrow night, yeah, and, and, and then we go see them the next night, we're probably going to get close to the same, if not the exact same show. It's going to be more like a Broadway play, right? Here's yeah. the here's the script. Here's how. Nothing wrong with that, but it's different. Now, if you and I go see a jam band Monday through Sunday, we are likely to see seven totally and completely different shows. We might not see a lot of the same songs repeated, depending on the band. Uh, right. And and this is why jam band culture has fans that follow bands from city to city, and and why jam band culture has fans that rapidly record and trade recordings now historically this used to be a lot more complicated and expensive to do oh my gosh yeah i I remember being at a counting crow show my first counting crow show and this was 2001 and 2002 and i almost got in a fight with a guy who i remember this while writing this episode who was angling in the front couple of rows where i was he was trying to angle his body around, and it was crowded. It was a music festival, and I realized he was taping, and that's why he was being a jerk, but we got into it, and so then I got distracted writing this episode, looking online to see if I could find that taper's tape. <laughs> wow. I think, oh, my I, gosh. I, I think I did. I think I found it, but I've got to, like, it's, I don't know if this website's, uh, at, you know, if, if it's being... Uh, paid attention to or not but it's not there's nothing i can stream i'd have to like send a guy a postage stamp and uh he'd have to send me a cd in the mail but i'm I'm very tempted to do it wow do you know this is a generational jam bands everything getting the tapes um i remember in the 80s late 80s early 90s having to send off to get a, a catalog sent to me a paper catalog and that paper catalog had tapes in it. There were lots of Grateful Dead stuff like in the catalog. Right, sure. right, right. But you know what I was looking for? Kiss. Right, that other stuff. I was I was looking, you know, where you would get you would get more than one tape and be like, wait, these all sound the same because they're the same show. Because <laughs> they're playing night. the same show every they're night. They're doing the same show every night. Right. Um, but you would have but the guy would be physically in Canada and he yeah. wasn't United States. Um yeah. And it was, but it was so crazy. It was like the most amazing transaction to make. I, oh. Like oh, yeah. ever, how exciting, like what the thing, you know, and now I've re I've discovered some of the things that I had on cassette that I lost a long time ago on YouTube. And those are so like, those have to be spectacular too. And imagine all the dead cassettes that became CDs. Yeah. That, yeah. Like the format has changed and how that's, that's, that's a lot of music. It's had a lot of format changes. Well, and imagine living all the way through this, right? So, like, if, if you are following the dead and then you start following fish and you've been there for all of this, right? You you are at one point making these tapes, trading them in the mail, uh, trying to get stuff listed in catalogs, you know, however that all works, right? And then eventually you get to a point where the tools catch up and the technology catches up and you can upload the audio straight into the internet for other people to download. And the work you used to have to do, the work that was done by fans, and they were often using basic recording equipment from the middle of the crowd. So the quality of the recording was suspect at best. But I now literally have an app on my phone. I pay $13 a month to subscribe to the content in this app, and I can access soundboard, soundboard recordings of Counting Crows concerts all the way back to the year 1992, and lots of other stuff. Plenty of DMB on there, Pearl Jam. Jack White actually catalogs his current last couple tours on there. Is it Nugs? Nugs. Yeah. Yeah. So so you so you can listen to the the Metallica gigs too. All the Metallica that. stuff is on there. It's it's strange. A lot of it, you know, Mo, Pigeons playing ping pong, like those bands are using it really really actively still. Um but you also have some of this bleed over from more classic acts and some rock acts and that, you know, it's folks who are actively taping. And County Crows are always, you know, I mean since Brandon brought them up, I guess I'll talk about them for a moment. They they have they're on the periphery of this conversation. They borrow a lot from jam band culture, but they've never fully committed. And in the last 10 years or so, especially, they sort of made a decision to say, well, I guess we'll just sort of like, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but take the money. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're still switching up their sets a little, but they're not doing the sort of stuff they used to do. I sent you a, I sent you a video, I think. Yeah. You sent me the, the round here version. Yeah. They, they did a version. They, they used to always take one of their 
big radio songs. And they used to number one, the number one rule was they didn't play them all. So you would get one or two a night. And they would take one of them and usually extend it into 10 or 15 minutes and put other songs inside of it. So my all-time favorite is there's a version of Rain King they were doing around this time that we're talking about with Dave Matthews around 2000 where they did Thunder Road in the middle of Rain King. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's And, dude, Thunder Road. One of the greatest songs ever written. Yeah. Um, also, they would then do, and I didn't know this until the other day, and this is the beautiful thing about the internet and YouTube, is they were doing, oh, when I was on that website, looking at this, trying to buy this guy's Memphis recording of the show I was at, thinking it was probably the same taper that I was standing next to, uh, I saw a list of a, a set from later that week or something in like 2002, and they and I was like, wait, they do round here with "Come Pick Me Up" by Ryan Adams in the middle. So I immediately start looking for it on the internet, so I can hear it immediately. And I find this recording from German television, <laughs> where they are doing it, and that's the sort of stuff they used to do, right? But they never fully committed to this culture all the way. And most people, but that's why they have a fan base like me that still follows them around to a very lesser degree, uh, you know, and tries to see them a few times a year. Because there is enough energy in those shows that they'll occasionally be doing interesting stuff like that. Um, the last time I saw them, they did Pale Blue Eyes inside of Goodnight Elizabeth. So that was cool. Back to what we're talking about. I'm including all of this talk here about bootlegs and about bands and about jam uh, because I think establishing this idea of tape trading and music swapping is something that predates the internet for the subgroup of music fans is important because it helps us understand what becomes known as illegal file sharing a little differently. If you as a music fan had a really strict understanding of music as a commercial product in the 1990s, if it was just something you went to the store and purchased, then taking that commercial product and using a new technology to give it to someone else would seem like stealing. But if you were part of a subculture built on sharing the music, recording it, shipping it, trading it, then this new technology is just a tool that helps you achieve a new level of efficiency, right? (laughs) when it comes to live recordings, these bands we're talking about were not only aware that this trading was happening and that this, this, you know, recording and shipping was happening. They were creating sections. Do you remember ever going to a show where there was a, an actual tapers section? Like these used to exist. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember who all it was for. I remember like a black crow show. I think I saw. Okay. So they were, they're sort of in that counting crows thing, right? Black crows and counting crows sort of in that same space where they're like on the periphery of the jam band scene, but not really in it. I didn't realize they were cousins till just now. Um, cousins, both crows. Yeah. They're crows. I, I never have like, I just, I have their names kind of imprinted as one thing and I never realized they just were, they were related. So, I just, last thing on this, I think this nuance is often overlooked when Napster is discussed, right? Because music's always been traded in some forms. And while ripping the studio version is inherently different, the lines get really blurry when you've been trading live music already for decades. Brian, did you ever have the Dead Kennedys record that on the... It's on the, the other side of the cassette, on the other side of the cassette, because this side is left intentionally blank. So right. that you basically, so that you can record music and do, you know, it's right, like, right, it's right, right, a, right, right, right. I mean, and that was a very a punk, that was punk rock. Period. Yeah, that was punk rock ethos. Well, here it makes sense to discuss Dave Matthews band in the specific, because while they fully meet the criteria to be considered a jam band, like I've already said, they, they were a huge pop cultural moment in the mainstream. And it's easy to forget how gargantuan they got. They start in the early part of that decade. Dave Matthews is a bartender in Charlottesville, Virginia. He meets a lawyer named Ross Hoffman. I think the guy's just literally coming to the bar. They hit it off, talks about music, plays him some songs he's been working on, and he's like, you should meet this other guy, this other musician here in town who's been playing jazz on BET for some reason named Carter Beaufort. They connect with another local jazz guy, Leroy Moore, and they start to mess with some songs that Dave's been writing. So back to your point about the beauty of this music and the musicianship in this music, the two-thirds of this original act is made up of jazz dudes. Right? I mean, like <laughs> yeah. classically trained jazz dudes. You really feel this when you dig past the radio singles. It, or if you if you get on Nugs and you listen to their shows. A lot of what they become is set in this foundation of jazz, both musically and format-wise. Because jazz, I mean, I don't have to explain this to the knowledgeable audience here, but it's, you know, it's grounded in improvisation. That's sort of the definition. So 
The other detail here is location, location, location. This band is built in a college town, and college radio is what's going to break these dudes wide open. There's actually a Dave quote from early in their history where he says, at first when we got together, it was just an understanding that we were going to record and then send the recording we'd made to record companies. We did that, but really nothing happened. That was within the first six months of being together and within the first year of me writing songs. So instead, they push to this live performance. Because they realize very quickly that when people come in the room, they, they're converted. And, yeah. and live performance is what's going to start to define them. To your point about how many records they sell without a record label, their first two recordings also are weird if you go back and listen to them now because they include live tracks. Like what band puts out their first two records and is like, we're going to throw in a bunch of live recordings, right, from our shows. It's like who, that's not how it normally works. In the, in the product cycle. And, and the people who see them live are buying these live recordings. They make this record, Remember Two Things, in 1993. Yep. They sell it. They distribute it themselves 100,000 copies. Think of the logistics. Have you been in a band? Think of your band trying to sell 100,000 copies of, of anything. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's not that you couldn't produce it, but the logistical concerns of trying to sell it while also being in a band and doing the things that are fun about being in a band, it'd be very hard. And, and I begrudgingly was a... Uh eventually at in about a year or so after this that record came out was a music director that that had that record that record played on our college radio station and and to me it didn't fit at all what we were trying to do but they also were a basically a very regular artist to the market that came and could 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 draw a ton of people oh yeah and so we played not just like we played a couple of the songs like we played you know all the cuts because people, those, those, you know, that first record, those live songs are so good. It explain it is without being in the room. It's what sells you on that band. Like I so was sold on the band from I, here. I it. just remembered the first time I ever heard Dave Matthews band while you were describing this. And it was, uh, my parents bought me a CD player. Must've been made by Sony. And with the CD player came a two disc set called, Modern Rock Live. Oh, and it was Modern Rock Live. It was a radio show, a short-lived radio show. This two CD set, and I've looked it up on eBay since to see if it's still if you can find it, and, and it's out there. It introduced me to a wide swath of bands I had never heard of, and one of them was, and, and Dave was the only artist on there twice. He did they did Jimmy Thing, and maybe Dancing yeah. Nancys, uh, but it was live in a studio, and also on this disc. I learned for the first time I heard Ben Folds Five, who would be a band oh. that has wow. defined my life. I mean, they're in my top five. It was, it was Philosophy off their very first record. My favorite Ben Folds song. Oh, it's so good. But really amazing performances that taught me a lot. And this is the first time I heard Dave. And I remember asking around, like, who is this Dave Matthews guy? And you can imagine, you described how ubiquitous they became in this time period. RCA Records notices something's going on, right? And now they're they're coming calling. And they're not the only people. This record gets the attention of a British producer. You've already named him. His name is Steve Lillywhite. And oh my gosh, Steve Lillywhite. Do you, do you want to do the rundown on Lillywhite? Yeah, um, U2's first three records. Yep. <laughs> As of that. Yep. <laughs> uh, he did XTC. He did a, he did a, like two Fish records. Okay, um, let's talk about let's talk about country. his biggest contribution. His biggest contribution, even beyond the Dave Matthews Band, the sound he created with Peter Gabriel. Do you? Oh want, yeah. So when you are in your car and something in the air tonight comes on, and you play the air drums, that is the power of Steve, Steve Lillywhite in your stereo. Boom, 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 boom. That sound was created by Steve Lillywhite and. Peter Gabriel. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. I wouldn't even think about that. He did dirty work. He did like the Stones is like arguably like not as good record as any of them. He's the worked with records. everybody. Lily White's worked worked with everybody. And there's a lot we could say about him, but just understand this dude at this point is already a studio legend. And last year, the Ringer did a retrospective piece on Crash, the, the second DMB record. And you can read it in the show notes. It's great. Uh, but this is this is from that piece. The first time Lily White heard the music of Dave Matthews' band, he became extremely irritated. Uh, and as a result, mildly intrigued. Lily White had been sent and finally got around to listening to Remember Two Things. 
And that kicks off with a particularly lengthy version of the now familiar Ants Marching snare drum intro. This is a Lily Rye quote. After 10 seconds, I go, this is fucking a little bit stupid. Lily White tells me, quote, after 20 seconds, I'm going, okay, I'm going to keep listening because you're not going to impress me. But when the song's riff kicked in, Lily White realized, quote, I had my rhythm turned around the wrong way. Something about the way the music rubbed his own misplaced dismissal in his face left him, quote, absolutely floored. It just was the greatest thing I'd ever heard, said Lily White. He flew to New York to see the band at Irving Plaza to woo Matthews and gently but firmly elbow another producer pal who had already been hired to oversee Under the Table and Dreaming out of the way, and that's Jerry Harrison. Yeah, <laughs> from the talking heads. that crazy? Lily White will become the man behind the board for all three of these records that push DMB into musical superstardom, Under the Table and Dreaming, Crash, and Before These Crowded Streets. So when they're ready to do their fourth record... DMB call up Steve Lillywhite to start what they all agree is going to be another fruitful session, but they want to do something different this time. They are road dogs. They are tired. They want to go home and they want to record in Charlottesville. The show is brought to you in part today by Our Brains Hurt. If there is one thing that Murdoch and I love, it's punk rock. You've heard us talk about it a lot recently on the show. And if you need a little more punk rock in your life, if you need another podcast to add to your listening list, uh, check out Our Brains Hurt. Ron and Matt, both dudes from the Washington, D.C. area, they started this podcast during the COVID shutdowns because they wanted to give local punk bands an outlet to continue to put things out. So they've been at it now for a couple of years, and they have had some badass guests. How about uh, Ben Weasel? Joe Queer, Richie Ramone, Guar's Sleazy P. Martini. <laughs> and that's not even to mention all the other badasses from the local scene, etc. Our Brains Hurt is your very own punk rock audio green room. Each week, Ron and Matt sitting down with a new guest, chatting about shows, talking about tours, discovering records, whatever else comes up. And you can find it anywhere that you get your favorite podcasts. Or you can head over to their website. That's Our Brains Hurt. O-U-R Brains Hurt dot com. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I love talking about rock and roll history. Not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health. But if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. I don't know if you know the name Matt Norlander. He's a CBS sports guy, mostly covers basketball. But I, yeah, go ahead. He, he has a little passion project called Records and Riffs. It's a podcast about some of his musical obsessions. It's pretty good. And one of his musical obsessions is Dave Matthews Band. And he just recently, I guess using his CBS Sports credentials, published a three-part series about this subject matter we're talking about today. But he did it by having long-form conversations with the engineer on these sessions, Steve Harris, and with Steve Lillywhite himself. There is like a 90-minute Steve Lillywhite interview. It's in the show notes. If you want to just hear Steve Lillywhite Talk about how hurt he is by this whole experience two decades on. He's still talking about it. Okay. Wow. We're headed towards the actual question at hand. Like, how do these lost sessions make it onto the internet? But first, we got to talk about the sessions themselves. So, we're almost there. In a nutshell, the story goes that in early 2000, the band builds this studio in a house they bought in Charlottesville. They start recording. They've got a whole bunch of stuff in process. And then they break for some shows in the summer. 
and they take a hiatus. It's like May. Steve Lillywhite gets a call from the band. I think it's like August-ish. The band manager calls and says, don't come back. These guys are going to abandon this work, and they're letting you go. So the question... Now, Steve doesn't think anything is wrong. He talks about this at length. He doesn't know anything is wrong. Was there... Like, looking back, it's hard to say, like, oh, yeah, I guess there was some tension here, some tension there. But, like, at the time, it's just normal stuff, right? They're creating something together. There's push and pull, whatever. The question, of course, from Steve and from everyone is, is why? Why are why is this being abandoned? Lily White still says he doesn't really know what made them want him out of the equation. So there's several things you hear about this when you start looking at message boards and scraping for rumors. One that always comes up is that Dave was sad and depressed and drinking too much during this time. And this was partly because he lost like a stepfather and maybe another family member or two. And I'm not sure this is really true in the way it's promoted to be. Some of the material is a little darker on these sessions, but Dave, as peppy as a lot of that output has been, is always sort of sitting under a dark storm cloud. We're not going to get too distracted by this, but do you know that right before Under the Table and Dreaming comes out, and that record is dedicated to his sister, because his sister was shot and killed by her husband in a murder-suicide while he was recording that. Oh my gosh. Wow, no, I didn't know that. So I don't know if I buy that he sat about his stepfather, and so he tanked the sessions. That's a weird thing. Uh, here's another thing you hear. Dave was using a 12-string for the first time. This is true. Uh, it seems like a weird thing to have tanked an entire session, but it is true. Number three thing that you will always hear about these sessions is that this is the first time that Tim Reynolds is not involved in these recordings. Oh, makes sense, yeah. Now, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but those who know anything about Dave know that name, Tim Reynolds. He was a guitarist and a performer around the scene in Charlottesville back when Dave was a bartender. They knew a bunch of the same people. They play in all sorts of different configurations for a while. He's always around, but he will not officially join the band until 2008. He's actually in the promo photos now, but for a long time, he was just a friend of the Dave Matthews Band. I saw Tim Reynolds in the early 2000s and I left after like three songs it was one of the hardest things to watch I've ever tried to watch I've I've heard something similar from another person who went to see him by himself but I saw I saw Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds together and it it was it was pretty magical well really great you know I've been talking about how much I heard every day during that period of my life but the other thing I heard was the live at Luther College Dave and Tim double disc yeah. that that was the other yeah, thing that was always yeah, on so i know those songs from under the table and and those other records but i really know the versions of them that are those acoustic duo versions but when you hey, hear so these do you, do you, no go ahead when you hear these norlander interviews with both steves harris and lily white the one thing they both bring up is this house so the whole idea is that they buy this house that it's been on the market for a long time, and they're going to renovate it, move the band into it, and record. But it's not a recording studio. It's a house. Now, it was this like old estate or mansion, and the room they decide to record in is an old dance hall. And it has these low ceilings. And both of these recording wizards, in their 2022 interviews, spend a lot of time talking about how terrible this space was for recording. Uh, one of them even gets into this whole idea about like a physical problem that you have after you try to record in a space like that with your ears not hearing things correctly or something. They was like they like throwing science on it. I don't know, but what's really fascinating is that Norlander just lets Steve Lillywhite keep talking. Like he doesn't crowd him, and he lets him just get sort of pissed and confused. And I wouldn't say these are uncomfortable interviews to listen to. But there is a point where you like feel sort of bad for Steve Lillywhite that he's just on the phone 20 years after this thing, still this sort of torn up about it. At some point, he brings up that during one of these sessions, and he tries he he, he tries to back out of saying this. Like He starts, and then he stops, and then Norlander's like, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And he's like, no, I'm not going to say that. And then he just says it, which is <laughs> that at one point, one of the band members, and he doesn't say who, showed up and like revealed that he had a conceal and carry and had a gun on him. And Lily White's British and not for that, I guess. And he yeah. gets totally freaked out. Uh, he also mentions that at some point 
he'd gotten sober. And so uh, in these sessions, so like the last sessions for before these crowded streets, which at this point was several years before this, he, he wasn't. And so he and Dave were drinking buddies and now he's gotten sober. And so he's basically the DD for Dave and Steve Harris, the audio engineer. And so he will take them to the bar at night and then turn around and come home. Wow. I, these interviews are crazy. It, it's it's like he's mining the situation in retrospect for reasons that he might have been resentful. But it all culminates when this A&R guy comes by one night and gets a band member, and I think it's Boyd for the record, to say that they, are not, they don't feel like it's going well. And the A&R guy goes, well, that's all I needed to hear. And then he leaves. And... That's crazy, right? That's that's what gets the wheels in motion to get Steve out of there. So Steve goes home at this break, gets his call, he's out. And if these sessions had just been dropped and the dust was allowed to settle, things may have never become what they become in terms of legend and lore. But what Dave does after these songs get thrown out, he goes from Charlottesville to L.A., and he goes from Steve Lillywhite to a producer named... Glenn Ballard. Yeah. I was going to ask, are we really going to talk about this guy? Because I looked, I was like, who produced every day? I was like, wait, that's, that's the guy that worked on thriller and bad and dangerous. And he co-wrote man in the mirror. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He's yeah. Yeah. And he, he worked, he worked with like, he, he worked with a ton of people, but he worked with Michael Jackson. Well, now the name that he gets most associated with is Alanis because he was, I think he's got co-writing credits on most of Jagged Little Pill. And he is the guy, and people forget this, Jagged Little Pill, the third Alanis record. There are two pop records before that. So he turns Alanis into Alanis. Before that, she is a fledgling Canadian pop star that is not getting traction anywhere. And Except Canada. Except Canada. But Canada, they have to play her, so that doesn't count. So, uh... This is part of, I mean, if you want to go into message board hell, you can find old posts where people go to town on Glenn Ballard's reputation saying basically he's the guy who created an alternative rock version of Alanis Morissette and he's going to do the same thing to Dave Matthews. He's going to turn and make this radio-friendly version of Dave Matthews and the band or the fans feel such an ownership over this band. They do not want that. Now, he goes also, so Dave goes to Glenn Ballard, he goes to LA, and he goes by himself. And they write, so this a lot of these songs from the Lilywise sessions, fans have been hearing snippets of them as intros and outros and inside of other songs for years. They know names, they have names for them, the names will morph and change by the time they get to the record, but like, they are a lot of aware of the pieces. There's a, literally one of the pieces, I think I put it in the show notes, from the message boards, goes through in painstaking detail as to like, all the discovery of all the different songs that were going to be on the Lillywise sessions and what they used to be and all that sort of stuff. So you can get way deep into that. I say all that to say that when he he goes to LA and makes his album with Glenn Ballard, he does it in like a week. Like they just write all the songs. He, he and Glenn do together. And then they bring Boyd and Leroy and Carter and everybody out, Stefan, and they like are basically like a session band. Like, hey, I've written all these songs. Come in and do that. Like, so that's not how DMB had done anything. So again, yeah, how did that work? How'd that go with everybody? They, I don't think they loved it. It, as I said, by commercial standards, and in the opinion of people like me who enjoyed it but didn't have a lot of emotion invested in it, this album was great. But to DMB fans who traded tapes and had newly built online message boards on which to talk about ideas and theories and hopes for this new material and spend all this time saying like, I think the outro to that song is going to be on the new record. This entire process and procedure, it's a betrayal. And this group, these these fans, they want to know what they're missing. Okay, timeline once more, because we're starting to move fast, and it's going to get confusing. You asked about this earlier. I'm going to lay it out one more time. January to May of 2000, Lily White recording sessions. Hiatus in May. August or so, Lily White finds out he's fired. October, Dave goes to L.A. to record with Glenn Ballard. Ballard. Okay, this is how fast it happens. October of 2000, Dave goes to LA. February of 2001, the record is released. Wow. 
I can get it why people might not like Glenn Ballard for sure. You know, especially, let me tell you, someone, some, a group of people I know really hate him are people that only love Jack Wagner for being on General Hospital. Because from what I can tell from looking at this <laughs> discography, he produced every Jack Wagner. I've lost track. There's like over <laughs> six or seven he of them. He did. That's such a dumb factoid. But, he totally produced Jack Wagner. I ran across that. I was like, I'm just going to leave that alone. But I'm glad you brought it up. He did. Yeah, He produced Jack I Wagner. I could have said Wilson Phillips' like self-titled smash for sure. But I mean, good Lord, dude. That's like that's kind of the thing when you look. It's like it's it's yeah. There's a lot of those records. So February of '01, every day is released. March '02, the Lily White sessions are leaked, and DMB message boards go insane. Now we've talked about how the internet aided this long tradition of trading the music, but before MP3s and FLAC and WAVs were flooding phone line connections, the jam band community benefited from the internet in another way, and that was by connecting fans to fans. Now. You know, I'm sure you can you can relate to this. Lewisburg, Tennessee, in the '80s, yeah. listening to hair metal. It would have been really awesome if you'd been able to connect to other people that were anywhere that loved hair metal the way you did. It's sort of hard well, to go to school and be like, "Hey, do you like uh, Cinderella?" Like, you know, you don't necessarily oh. want to do that. Oh no, dude! I had pen pals. That's a real thing. Like. There were like magazines and it was like you would you could find people and if you wanted to, you could sign up and you could become pen pals with people. Oh, see, that's first of all, that's amazing. Second, that's exactly what the Internet allows on an instantaneous almost and much more expedient scale. All these fanboys and fangirls get to meet each other. And it seems quaint to spell that out, right, in the year 2022, or to even talk about what you were talking about, about actually having pen pals from the back of a magazine to talk about Cinderella and Rat. But it becomes a giant part of this story, and of how to tell this story, because when you get to the leak portion, you now have to consider the message board community and the perspective of that community on the situation at large. But the other key component of this that gets often overlooked in the case of DMB is that this message board community was so robust that the band and the people involved in their creative processes were very aware that the message boards existed. And they fully embraced bringing this rabid fan base closer to them. Meaning, it was not unusual for people associated with the band to post on these boards and communicate and update fans directly about what DMB was doing. Actual updates from Steve Lillywhite to the fan base in the early parts of these sessions before he was aware that anything was awry. So Steve Lillywhite is posting on these fan boards, talking to, hey, it's Steve Lillywhite, the producer of Dave Matthews Band. I'm glad you guys are into it. We're working on new stuff. He's he's posting on these boards. Now, as for the write-ups about the larger situation, and I mean the write-ups on these message boards that exist in the aftermath of this, there's several long-form versions that I've referenced here. Some of these write-ups are like the length of a novella. So I'm just going to give you the highlights. But but like I said, you can find them in the show notes if you want to get into the real nitty-gritty of what songs and when and all that stuff. Let's get into the real story. from And let's hear it from the people who made it happen, the fans at large. Uh, have you ever heard of the band Ants Marching? Um, I don't think so. They, they were one of the premier DMB tribute acts at the time in the early 2000s. In 2022, again, it feels... Like every band that's ever put out like three or more records as a tribute act. But right. back in the day, this was like very unique. I remember DMB tributes playing bars in my college town. It was a big deal. And, and these guys were really into it because they were fans first and foremost. And so they, they really were painstaking about getting it right. And they were very responsive to the DMB fan community ecosystem. So one day in March of 2001, the lead singer of Ants Marching, this guy named Craig Knapp, he gets a package in the mail with a CD inside labeled The Summer So Far. It will become known later that this is how Lily White would label things from sessions. It's actually very literal. This is The Summer So Far. The sessions from The Summer So Far. Now, he knew this was coming. And I'm talking about Craig. Craig Knapp from Ants Marching knew he was going to get this package because he had gotten an email a few days before from a guy named Tom Griffin. And Griffin was a college student who offered Knapp a copy of what he called in his email the unreleased everyday sessions. Now, there's some 
precedence as to why Tom would give this to Nap. Ants Marching was so well-respected in this community, they were known for learning the DMB songs that weren't recorded. So they, they would listen to bootlegs and live recordings, and they would do these different versions and stuff, right? And so they were already doing some of the things that were rumored to be on the Lily White sessions. Because like I said, they made it into live performances. And it said that if you wanted to share this with one person in the DMB community who could do something good for the fans, it would make sense that it would be Craig Knapp. So Craig gets this CD in the mail. He pulls it out. He puts it on, thinking he's going to hear four or five acoustic versions of everyday songs. And very quickly, he realizes he's got the holy grail. Like I said, Craig is tied in pretty deeply to the message board scene. So he tells these people on the message board that he has this, which seems like mistake number one. They go nuts. But he feels very badly about releasing this because he's not sure how Tom got it. Now, one of these recaps that I mentioned that's in the show notes from from the Ants Marching message board, I'm going to read directly here. This was written by a guy named Greg Heller in 2001. Given that Dave Matthews is, well, Dave Matthews, anything he does in the studio is tantamount to spy plane blueprints or snapshots from Area 51. Following producer Steve Lillywhite's dismissal last fall, eight discs of the work in progress were burned and each were labeled the summer so far. The master tapes were immediately locked in DMB's Charlottesville, Virginia studio vault where they've remained. Distribution of the eight discs went as follows. One to Lillywhite, one to the engineer, Stephen Harris, one to A&R at RCA, one for each DMB member. And the, a- the A&R guy at RCA, his name is Bruce Floor. He's a legendary A&R guy. Each DMB member, Matthews, bassist Stefan Lassard, violinist Boy Tinsley, drummer Carter Beaufort, and saxophonist Leroy Moore. Lily White claims that, quote, there was no way anyone else could have had that music and that the original discs were, quote, of really good quality, much better than what people are downloading. And and this part next addresses what Brandon mentions in the letter around the idea that the record label was involved. Because this is coming from 2001. There's been a widely held belief that this initial leak came from with in RCA Records. So mm. immediately people are like, Bruce Floor did this. But Bruce Floor shut down the sessions, Right. Like he was the one that was talking to Boyd and said, all you have, you know, enough said. If you don't think this is good, I'll see you later. And then the sessions get shut down, right? And Bruce Floor is adamant that his copy has always been accounted for and that he has not lent it out or casually left it anywhere. So if that's the case, where the hell did Tom Griffin get this? Well, he's been somewhat forthcoming. He claims that he got it from a friend. And this friend has a ski house in Colorado. And he says that this friend was in his ski house in Colorado and a member of Dave Matthews' band was also at his ski house in Colorado and showed him the sessions. And while that person from the Dave Matthews' band hit the slopes, this friend of Tom's copied the disc and returned to that member's returned that disc to the stack of belongings before that member of Dave Matthews' band came back off the slopes. Then this friend goes back to college with Tom, shows it to him, and Tom sends it to Greg because he figures the guy from Ants Marching might want to learn the stuff from it. Now, that all sounds very far-fetched. Except, have you ever heard of the brand Rossignol? Uh, No. It's an outdoor company, and they make snowboards. You know who has a signature model, Rossignol, that you can buy? No. Stefan Lassard. The bass player for the Dave Matthews Band. He's a what? well-known snowboarder who vacations often in Colorado. So, <laughs> back to Craig Knapp. Craig Knapp's in his apartment. He's got this disc. He's told way too many people that he has it. People are freaking out on him. They are emailing him letters, carrier pigeons, phone calls, whatever they can, demanding him to release the Kraken. It's chaos. So, he tells the fans, okay, 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 okay. Out of respect for the band, I'm not going to release it unless I get permission. But remember, Steve Lillywhite's been commenting on this message board. So they dig up his email and they send him a note. 
And this is coming via the 2007 Jake Vigliotti situation summary on Ant's marching message board. Friday, March 23rd, a few minutes before 1 p.m. Eastern. Hello, Mr. Lillywhite. I thank you in advance for taking time to read this email. I have unintentionally placed myself in a very precarious situation. About a week ago, I got an email from a DMB fan claiming they had some unreleased material from the new Dave Matthews Band CD. He asked if I wanted a copy. I said yes, thought it was going to be acoustic takes from every day. I received it yesterday, and it's indeed the session that you and DMB recorded in Virginia. And I, I love this because it's like true fanboy stuff. I love it very much. Excellent work. I am blessed to receive this. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, I have a question for you, and it's one of moral standards. I would really like to share these songs with the DMB trading community. However, I feel that if the Dave Matthews Band and Steve Lillywhite did not release them, then I don't have the right to do that. I don't want to disrespect the band or you. I guess my question is this. Am I disrespecting Dave Matthews Band and Steve Lillywhite by making these songs available? So, Here's the next dumbass thing that Craig Knapp did. He posted this letter he sent to Steve Lillywhite on the message boards. Now, it sounds like Knapp got an initial reply in which Lillywhite said, let me talk to DMB management. I'll get back to you. He also tells the message board this has happened. And then within a few hours... He gets a reply. I was able to contact some people, and we came to the conclusion that because of DMB's loyal fan base following honesty and patronage towards the band over the years, releasing these tracks should be, let's say, sort of a treat to the trading community. Keep in touch and enjoy. Lily White has blessed the session. Release the Kraken. And these things fly into the world. One slight little detail. Steve Lillywhite did not bless the release. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> what a fan on those message boards did was what the IT guy I know says all hackers do now, which is he messed with the email address and spoofed it to make it look like Steve Lillywhite's email address. So instead of silly white, it was S1LLYWHITE, replacing the I with a number one. And in a, in a quick glance, you wouldn't catch it. Because you know what? Craig Knapp didn't catch it until July of 2001. So for wow. four months, he thinks this has been legitimate. Now, I'll forgive the guy because it's 2001 after all. But holy cow. So let, let, let's wrap up addressing a few things, right? First, the original question. Publicity, stunt, accident, thievery. What do you think? I'm thinking thievery. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, that's the official thing, right? It's like accidental thievery. Like, I mean, it's an accident. Stefan Lassard should not have been showing it around and going skiing. But, so that's the accident part. But then it's it's stolen. So it's really thievery. DMB is going to be forced to talk about this in the press for years. You can go watch. There's a there's a Carson Daly clip that's pretty famous about this. There's an EW interview. But they seem mad, legitimately mad. And there's like stuff on the message boards where people are like, if you watch this clip at this timestamp, you can see them all look at Stefan. I don't know if that's true. Um, but I'm also not quite naive enough that I would completely rule out the idea that this wasn't calculated by the record label. I mean, like, they pissed off the fan base really badly. They can't take the record back. The record's successful with the wrong people. So can you have your cake and eat it, too? Like, I, I, I could kind of see that. I don't necessarily think that's true. That's definitely conspiracy theory territory. But it's also, like, not the craziest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. It does lead us to a second thing I want to discuss. Okay. Which is that there is a case to be made that this whole thing does serious damage to their career. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. They still have a massive fan base and they still play sheds. But their viability on the larger market definitely dissipates after all this. I mean, Brandon even admits in our correspondences that after this record, he quits He quits paying attention to them. He's not really paid attention to them in 20 years. And I did too. And you sort of said you did too. Oh, yeah. I, it was just, you know, I, I wasn't anywhere where those songs were hitting me. And you know what? I don't think that there was a lot of radio for, for him after a while. 
that uh, you know it's like the, they were still playing they were still playing those early songs but i think that radio kind of didn't like top 40 like radio kind of drop his his stuff for a while i mean I top mean, I 40 radio just got i mean that's a whole that's a bigger question right but top 40 radio by that point because that's when i got into radio was was during this period right the 2000 right after this 2002 and so yeah i mean we were re- we were leaning heavily on usher we were playing usher as many times as possible um, and we were going more and more urban, even in smaller markets in the middle of the South. So, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think the opportunity starts to shift to sort of hot AC and library formats, and it, you know, becomes a whole different thing. But this, the third and final thing I want to discuss about this so is the biggest part of this, and the reason that I felt like it was important to do this episode is this is a watershed defining moment in internet versus entertainment history, because if it is thievery, then and that's the narrative that's gone down in history. It's the first massive crossing of the line from this like, hey, we're we're taking property that a capitalistic machine like a record label wants us to pay for, and we're going to Robin Hood it out for free. And it crosses the line from that into we're taking something an artist is unhappy with and unfinished with, and we're releasing it to the public. Like some sort of weird destructive activist take on what art belongs to and when it should be, you know, when ownership transfers and all that sort of stuff. You think it's thievery too, in some way? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, sure. I think it is. I mean, I buy this Stefan Lazard story. That doesn't sound crazy to me. And this album leaks on the internet, and that's not new, even in two thousand one, right? This is this has been happening. It will really happen for the next few years. I remember at the end of that year, I was thrilled to get the new Incubus album a few weeks in advance uh, via Napster. Um, how about and how about Kid A? Oh, that was a big one too. That was a big one too. And of course, I mean, you know, that leads to how they, how they distribute in rainbows later. There's a lot there to unpack as well. But do you know what, this is a total side note. Do you know what's widely considered the first album leaked online of all time? Uh, You want a year? Yeah. And let's just talk about how long it would have taken to pirate this off the internet in 1993. 93? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I didn't have like any actual access to the web until 95. I think there was a lot of nerdy guys who liked Depeche Mode. That's the only thing I can figure out. But Songs of Faith and Devotion gets gets taken out of an office and leaked onto the internet. That's so crazy. I love that record. Violator, the one before that, is my favorite. And then I like that. I, I'm gonna say that when that's, I that's when, the hero, the heroin years. I, yeah, <laughs> it's 100 percent the heroin years. And when I started looking into doing this episode, I looked pretty hard at do we do a Depeche Mode episode? Do we combine the two of them? Because everything around the recording of Songs of Faith and Devotion is intense. There's a lot there. Maybe we'll come back to it at some point. But for now, it's a footnote in this story because that's the beginning. And it's, I mean, this is eight years later, right? Eight years later when this happens. But I, I really feel like this is different territory, right? Having material the band doesn't want out, doesn't want it out. And it becomes part of the convo that's going to continue for decades. It's, like I said, into present day. Um, and and it, the conversation is about where the lines are when it comes to the distribution of art versus commerce and intellectual property. Like, when does all that stuff start to become one thing so yeah finally how does this all wrap up from a story standpoint uh the fans love the lily white sessions love them yeah love them and boy i and boy i remember i remember when i got it it was i like i liked it a lot and it was something that you know everybody liked to listen to it was it was one it was like a if, if you had it around it was like something everybody liked to listen to for sure dmb will go back in the studio in 02 and they will re-record and re-release an official version of most of these songs and they will call the album busted stuff and they will use their old engineer steve harris to produce he's not a producer really at the time but they will use him to produce it they will not call steve lillywhite and they won't even put his name in the liner notes though for some godforsaken reason they think glenn ballard and in the year 2022, Lily White will tell Matt Norlander in this interview that he is still hurt and upset about this. Now, 
That doesn't keep them from calling Lily White back. Eventually, he will produce their 2012 record away from the world. So there is another DMB Lily White record. And I have to say, in the process of working on this episode, if it has done anything for me, it has made me fall back down the DMB hole, man. <laughs> dude, some of that music is so good. So good. That dude can write a hook. And I think that's what is like sort of, I, that's the that's the ingredient that got them on the radio and broke the mainstream thing, right? It's, yeah, they got the jazz, they got the improvisation, there's the jam band element of everything. But at the end of the day, man, the hooks. Yeah, yeah. I, they're, they're some of those songs, man. They're they're just glued into your brain. They're so pretty. Can you play uh, "Trippin' Billies" on uh, on acoustic? I'm gonna say no. Dun 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 dun. You do that like thing where you it's like two fingers at the top, and you, anyway, yeah, that was like a. There was like I never learned to play the actual song where it gets difficult, but it was always fun to be around a group of females and just like sort of strum those chords. And then try to ghost out before they realize you couldn't play the rest of the song. <laughs> hey, I can play Green Day instead. How's that? Can we do that instead? Did I give you enough of this? <laughs> well, I think I might have to go and and learn one of these songs. You're going to stay later. up late playing Dave Matthews Band. Hey, uh, if you want to get involved with the show, if you've got something that you want us to look into, like Brandon did, uh, you can send us an email. Like I told you, we are the story guys at gmail.com. What, where, what else should people be doing for us, Mark? Thanks, Brandon. And keep telling stories, everybody. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.